Hey folks, if you remember last week, we talked to Lonnie Bedwell about climbing Mount Everest and he mentioned his team. Uh, Well, we were able to sit down and talk with one of his guides, uh, Michael Neal, not long after we interviewed him. Uh, Just to hear the experience, uh, Michael and Brian Hill, who who helped to get Lonnie to the summit of Everest, had their own adventure before climbing Everest, which was biking, trying to set a world record for the fastest known time from sea level to the top of Mount Everest. And they started in the Indian Ocean uh, and did almost 800 miles of riding from sea level to high alpine mountain town uh, before trekking up to Everest Base Camp and continuing to uh, the summit of Everest. So this is part of that story from Michael's perspective. It was just sounds awesome, sounds so unique, uh, especially for an Everest attempt and an Everest climb. And this is the second time Michael's climbed Everest. So pretty special story, really cool interview, kind of a classic adventure sports podcast story, but it's it's connected to last week. So if you haven't already, listen to Lonnie's story. Uh, it is amazing. His uh, he, He's the first blind U.S. veteran to climb Everest, so that's what makes that so special. So give that a listen. You're going to be inspired, and Michael was incredibly inspired to be a part of it, and he's got tons and tons of stories in his own right, does so many cool adventures. So it, it, it was a pleasure to hear from him. All right, let's go ahead and dive in. Michael Neal, welcome to Adventure Sports Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. This is awesome. So, you know, you've got a lot we could talk about. We're going to focus on one of your adventures. But before we do, as tradition of the show, where where are you coming from today? And is that home? Uh, Yeah, I I live in Oregon. Um, I live on a lake near uh, Bend, Oregon called Lake Billy Chinook. Are you from there? Have you been there a while if, if you're not from there? Uh, we raise our children in Portland, about three-hour drive from here, but uh, we're empty nesters now, so we're, we spend most of our time here. We still own our home in Portland, but we spend most of our time here. Oh, that's awesome, man. So, you know, the adventure, you're, you're in obviously in an adventurous place. We've had a lot of guests over the years from the Bend area or just out of Oregon. There's obviously a lot of cool stuff to do. What was your journey getting into adventure sports? Did you grow up in a family that kind of did this kind of stuff, or did you have to come across it on your own terms? Yeah, I definitely did not grow in a family that grew up in a family that did this kind of stuff. I didn't do this kind of stuff. You know, I got a little lucky with some business projects that I was working on, uh, retired in my early 40s. And uh, I'm not asking for sympathy or won't get it anyways, but one of the challenges you have when you retire young is keeping your days full of something that's meaningful and exciting and fun. So for me, that was, uh, it started out with uh, work in my brain. I went to law school. I, I feel like I didn't do a good job educating my children about the value of education. I dropped out of college as a kid, so as a young person. So went back, finished my undergraduate degree. Then I went to law school and became a lawyer. And then after that, I kind of shifted over to athletics, um, hiking. I started rock climbing. Rock climbing, I'm sure you've interviewed a lot of people. It is such a fun sport. It is just a hoot to be out rock climbing. And how I rock climb over time has changed, especially as I've aged. But, uh, you know, and I, you start looking at bigger and taller things. And I got into mountaineering and uh, some long-distance cycling and some other stuff. So, Yeah, man. What a, what a, you know, you've, you've got an interesting 
phenomenon there, retiring in your early 40s and trying to fill your days. How, I mean, how how challenging is that? Because I, I feel like what's soft and similar is like uh, professional athletes. You know, a lot of a lot of athletes, especially like superstars, they make a lot of money and whatnot early on in life. And then, you know, this, um, and they're celebrated by like 100,000 people every week, you know, that they're cheering their name or they're at games. And it, it, it's just this, it seems like just an unbelievable experience for a lot of them. And then, you know, but careers are, you know, five years uh, on average or 10 years in the NBA, maybe a little shorter. And then like, what do you do from that point of on? How, how challenging for you was that? Yeah, I'm certainly not in the situation that you just described as professional athletes as my career. I just owned a couple of businesses and they happened to sell at the right time. And yeah. I actually didn't intend to graduate or uh, retire. I, I intended to spend uh, my kids. I have four children. I intended to spend their high school years with them being an involved dad, you know, mm -hmm. kind of involved. And it just, that was 14 years ago. So I just, it just kind of stuck. And, um, but it is hard. I mean, it, I, again, I'm not asking for sympathy. Nobody will give it to me anyways, if I ask, but you know, finding something meaningful to do with your day in a way that you can influence your children. And now my grandchildren, I have four grand boys and a fifth one on the way. And uh, it's just making a difference to them and showing them that we can do hard things. That's what I, why I do this. You know, it's uh, fun for me to be, to do all these fun things for myself, but it's also hopefully I'm able to pass on to the next generation that, uh, that you know, this isn't a dress rehearsal, you know, we have, we've got a, this life is real and we can do awesome things with it and get to see an amazing uh, planet that we've been gifted. And so for me, it's about enjoying my time, but also hopefully instructing my grandchildren. During that time of, of, of either rediscovery or self-discovery, who did you look at for inspiration? Was there anybody that followed the same path? Who were you kind of looking at as an example, if anyone? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, not really anyone. I just, I just found stuff that I liked. And it's just, it's a very, you, you know, if you go to a park, like a city park, and you see a bunch of three and four year old, almost every time they're climbing little rocks and getting to the top of them and puffing out their chest. And they're like, Hey, look, mom, I did this thing. It's a climbing rocks and mountains. It's kind of a, I don't know, it's a return to your infancy. It's a very juvenile, <laughs> you know, thing to want to do. And I just, found it to be fun. And for me, anyway, the, the, the more I did hard things, the harder, you know, I got stronger. And then I wanted to do the next hard and maybe even harder thing. And it became just kind of a process of self-improvement and self-development. Something I want to talk about today is this Sea uh, to Summit uh, bicycle tour you did on your way to climb Everest twice. Um, or for the second time, but what were, what were some of those major milestones leading up to that? And maybe as a follow-up question, what was like a, mo a really impactful adventure for you? Cause sometimes what people are known for is not always what's the most, uh, what was the biggest impact on them personally, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, let me first talk about the Sea to Summit. So, um, you know, I got connected with Lonnie Bedwell. He's a blind U.S. Navy veteran uh, several years ago. Uh, he's an amazing person. You got to interview him the other day. He, uh, he's a tremendous person to be involved with. I met him on a mountain in Argentina, and I heard a rumor that he was on, that there were two blind guys on the mountain and frankly couldn't believe it. Uh, that, the, the path that goes up Aconcagua is not an easy path for a sighted person. A lot of rolling rocks. I call them ankle breakers. 
I thought there's no way that a non-sighted person could do that. But we became friends. I met him. We became friends. And we spent a fair amount of time over the next uh, week and a half uh, in his tent chatting. And in a platonic way, I fell in love with him. And I fell in love with what he was doing. And he became kind of an inspiration to me. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about him and his kind of journey and my small role that I played in that. But uh, that was kind of the start of of doing fun things with Lonnie. Um, the bicycle ride, you know, he, when we set our, when we created this group Sightless Summits and we decided to, to get him to the top of Everest, our original goal was to do Everest and Lhotse together. And he would set a world record for being the first blind person to do that. He is the first blind veteran to summit Everest, uh, but he's not the first blind person to climb Everest. And so we had hoped that the Lhotse add-on would be a really cool experience. So but it felt, so me and a buddy uh, are kind of the, the sighted side of Sightless Summits, the two people who can see. And we decided that uh, we felt a little bit left out by not setting world records. <laughs> you know, Lonnie got to set a world record. Why can't we do something fun? And so- Why does the blind guy get to have all the fun? Yeah, right, right. right. <laughs> so we, uh, we decided that we would uh, fly to, with our bicycles to, um, the Bay of Bengal, the Indian Ocean, and ride from there across India, the northern part of India, into Nepal, and then meet Lonnie up at the high altitude village called Lukla, and from there, check to the summit. Um, so I have been bicycle touring for a while. I'm, I'm doing the, uh, the Americas in segments. I do bicycle riding, uh, touring, uh, maybe 1,500 miles at a time. So I just finished Panama. A couple months, I'll head down to Colombia and continue down South Argentina. And, and where did that start? Where did that journey, that segmented bicycle of the Americas start? In Bend, here in Oregon. Right there at home. And your goal yeah. is to make it where? Uh, down to Southern Argentina, Ushuaia, just the town down there. And Do you think you'll eventually take it from Bend up to uh, a white horse, or not white horse, but uh, Prudhoe Bay up in Alaska? I will eventually I'll connect it up to Prudhoe Bay so I can just say I've done the entire Americas and I, as a part of it I'm climbing the tallest mountain in every country that I ride my bicycle through which get, which kind of connects mountaineering my mountaineering passion with my bicycling passion and um, and I've been doing that for a little while so it's for me it's a it's a fun you know exercise to go do that stuff so anyways I'll, I'll head down to Columbia in a little bit and, and continue my ride south but so Brian and I came up with, Brian is my partner in the Sightless Summits project. We came up with this idea of riding from sea level to the high altitude village of Lukla where we would meet Lonnie. And then from there we would trek up to Everest. Wow. Um, it had been done before a couple of years, or sorry, a couple of decades ago. Um, and we just wanted to see if we could do it. So if, if I remember right, it was about 900 miles, something like that. Um, about 30,000 feet of vertical elevation on the bicycle and then, and then hiking the rest way with Lonnie. We did, uh, you know, do it faster than it's ever been done before, but I wouldn't say I'm proud of the speed. We, anybody wants to beat it. If they have, the, if they bother, they'll be able to beat it. You know, first of all, they're not going through, they won't be, you know, escorting a blind guide at the summit, but second of all, I think if they're pre-acclimatized and that kind of stuff, they could probably shave a couple of weeks off of the whole trip. So. Wow. Well, you know, th this is such a fascinating idea because it's such a unique twist on, you know, the story we've heard a lot of, which is doing Everest. And, 
you know, truly, you know, people often say it's like what I did was like climbing Everest five times or, you know what I mean? You hear that referenced a lot, but I'm like, no, when you climb Everest, you're not starting at sea level. Well, you did, you (laughs) you and your friend did. I mean, you're doing every inch of elevation of Everest starting at sea level, which is so crazy. What does it look like where you are at sea level, you know, where you started in, uh, in India, um, what's the setting? What would you describe and how familiar, familiar were you with that kind of bike touring in, in, in India? Was it your first time biking through there? It was. Yeah. So everywhere I bicycled, I've been able to speak the language. So I, I'm a fluent Spanish speaker. I learned it as a kid. So going through Mexico and Central America and South America, isn't that challenging. It's, it's challenging, but not from a from language, a, from a language point of view. Yeah. Yeah. So in India, I would say India is uh, vastly different from almost anything I've done. They, it is a culture. I didn't quite expect uh, the culture to be as the people are different. The language is of course, completely different. You know, there's, we could wave you know our hands a little bit and communicate, but a couple of things we noticed about India is it, there are a lot of people there and by a lot, I mean a lot. So you're never outside of, I mean, you, you might go, you know, an hour, in between villages, towns, but, but you're never not without, you know, outside of seeing people. That's interesting. I mean, I, I've heard other people talk about that as uh, biking through parts of China. Like you think you're alone. No. There's people around. What did that feel like? Did that, that was that tough to get used to? Cause you, you live in a place where you can at least get away if you want. Yeah. To. I, I live very remotely, but, uh, you know, the thing about India is that though they they have a culture of density so they don't have a they have a different sense of body distance you know a personal space so if we stopped our this is one of the fun things that were it was interesting for us when we would stop our bicycles to get a drink or to check on something or buy something we would be swarmed by people and within 30 or 40 seconds it'd be eight or ten people but if we stayed in the same place for more than three minutes we'd have 30 or 40 people all piled around us and they don't have, and they would just get really close, right, right up next to you and stare. And they would try to communicate, but they can't, we can't, you know, we could wave our arms a little bit in our hands, but they don't, their personal space issue is different from them. So they have no problem wrapping their arm around you and pulling you away from your bicycle so that they could get their selfies. They're obsessed with taking pictures and they wanted to constantly get pictures of me and my buddy and, uh, you know, at, at first, when you're being removed from your bicycle, that's a concern because you're like, yeah, somebody's going to steal my bicycle. Most of the time, it's a, it's a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah, but the, the, it was not the case here. We quickly learned that these people are kind and gracious and they just want their selfies. We, we, had, <laughs> we had people, cars on the highway work together. One would get in front of us and one would get to the side of us and they would force us off the highway like forcing us to stop in the, in the shoulder. Like and of box course you that, in. Yeah. Wow. That happens here in the United States or elsewhere in the world. You're, I mean, you're going to get chopped up into little pieces. These people, all they wanted was their selfie. So they would pull us over and then they'd come over and swarm us in the middle of the highway with their cameras and ask questions. One of the questions they asked, where go, we're going Everest. We could communicate there. And then one of the questions they wanted to know is how much is our bike? How much, how much dollar, dollar, you know? Yeah. And we started, of course, we started by telling them a thousand dollars, the bike. 
And that sent them over the moon. So we thought, well, let's not say that anymore. Let's cut it in half. Let, let's say five hundred dollars. And it was, in, in all honesty, it's probably more. <laughs> oh yeah, it's way more <laughs> than both of those numbers. But we started at five hundred dollars, or we went to five hundred dollars, and that still blew their minds. So after a while, you know, and this is the same question we got every single time we got pulled over. We would just stop responding. Go, oh no, it's very cheap, very inexpensive bike. <laughs> That's all we would say about it. Super interesting, man. And such a, an element that not a lot of people climbing Everest have, of course. What what did people think of when you did, because I get this a lot when people, you know, when I tell people when you're bike touring, especially and you're going through towns, you, you are the anomaly to people's yeah. day. They're having a regular day and they see a dude or, or a lady on a bike. What are you doing? And that's what they're talking about to their family at dinner. You won't believe who I met today. So you are an anomaly. So people want to ask you questions and I get it a lot. I'll tell people my whole route and it just, you know, they don't register it. It's like, oh, I'm going cross country. People that I speak the language with, they're like, oh yeah. yeah. What was people's reactions when you said I'm going to Mount Everest? Shock. Obviously these <laughs> people don't get beyond 20 miles out of their town. You know, many of them don't travel. They don't have. Cause you're going through a pretty rural areas. Yeah, it was so it basically started near Calcutta down in the Indian Ocean, the Bay of Bengal there and went across northern India and very poor communities and they don't get an opportunity. So in some ways, to your point, they do live a little bit vicariously through the experience we're having. They For them, it was a big deal to be able to meet us and to, you know, I feel like and I think my partner, Brian, feels the same way that we're a little bit ambassadors to not only the Western world, but to the United States. And our job is to smile and be kind and to show gratitude and be, you know, graceful to these people because they, they really are really, really kind, nice people. We never once felt a risk or danger or anything like that. It's just the personal space issue that was challenging for us. What, what were some of the, you know, of course, you know, saying I'm going to Everest, it, it's a thousand, nearly a thousand miles away or 700. And I probably felt that way with just how far away you felt you're starting out in these like coastal areas with you know rivers and and just a set a flat area setting that isn't anything like where you're going you know it just sounds like man you're going uphill for six seven hundred miles is that what it felt felt like being on the bike let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible that is plenty of that for now let's get back into the episode you know, so so the route was the first 500 miles was generally flat. We went uphill a little bit, but India's this part of India is pretty flat. It was right after we crossed into Nepal that it started going uphill. So most of the 29,000 feet that we gained in elevation was in Nepal, the, climbing the foothills of the Himalayas. So, so the first part of the ride through India was a cultural explosion of experience the food was fantastic so much better than i thought it would be the people were great the ride was you know pretty quick pretty uh efficient it was and then when we got into nepal everything changed um the density of people is uh you know it's much less populated than india the people were a little bit more respectful and kind they were all kind to us but they didn't swarm us like in nepal like they had in india um and then of course the it just, you spend your whole day going uphill, riding uphill and pushing. So you, so your speed goes, you know, drives it, you know, whereas 70, 80 miles a day was, uh, or a hundred miles a day was good in India. You get to Nepal and you're happy to do 50. 
you know, our 60 going up these hills, man, I bet. I mean, yeah. it's just endless. I imagine oh, absolutely yeah. endless. And, and there's no, and you know, what's the, the sad thing. There's no uh, payoff, you know, you're in the sense of downhill, you know, that's the one thing you always have with, with bike touring. It's like, well, I'm going over a pass. So the down, you know, I'll be able to at least ride on the other side. You're, you're headed towards the highest point in the world. So <laughs> yeah, overall, so there's no downhill. Yeah, overall there was no down. There, there were some downhills as we because we did go over passes and right. stuff. But, but you're, you're like, right. You know. I mean, it was yeah, it was generally uphill once we got into Nepal, and you know, that it was definitely a different experience riding up through there. But, so, what were some of the other challenges getting there? Because you know, this this would be an adventure in itself. Uh, you know, just the approach to Everest. You've done Everest before. You know, ha, ha, what were some of those other unexpected challenges? I think logistics was probably the biggest challenge is getting a bicycle from here. We have to, we have to stage our, our mountaineering gear in Kathmandu. So we flew to Kathmandu with our bicycles and then flew from Kathmandu to Kolkata and then had to find a, a ride, a van that would take us to the coastline. Getting all of those logistics in place. And then when we arrived in Lukla, our mountaineering gear had to meet us there. So we like to say that we did this route unsupported. Uh, we went from Bakali, India to Nepal, Lukla, Nepal, without any support at all. But once we got to Lukla, we had a large group of people meet us, uh, Lonnie included, but um, a number of trekkers who were just supporting the project, who were excited about the site, the summit's project joined us. We had a large team and all of our mountaineering gear showed up with that group. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So in, in, in the sense that we didn't carry our mountaineering gear on our bicycles, that showed up in Lukla. But other than that, we were unsupported. And uh, the logistics to manage all that and get our bikes in the right place and our mountaineering gear in the right place and get it shipped and transported and the bike transported out when we were done with the bicycle portion, that was a lot. That was a lot to plan for and prepare for. Um, and, and I mean, uh, gosh, man, you must've been absolutely exhausted too, by the time you got there, how were you feeling? Did you feel accomplished? What was like your mental state in the sense of, oh man, we just did that. I can't believe we've gone this far. Now it's time to summit, you know, wh where were you there? So I tend to, I, I I'm, um, I'm sure you know what type two fun is, right? It's oh, yeah. a, half the, half the fun is planning and the other half is looking back and just a very, very small little bit is the doing, you yeah. know, of it. I tend to be very good at planning and I get excited about the planning component. So the, once the bicycle ride was ending, I was excited to start the next phase. So, um, I'm, um, you know, we have a large group coming in one of including my wife. I haven't seen her in three weeks. So, uh, I'm happily married for 30. We've been married 32 years. So for me, it was super fun to get her to get, get back together with her and to be able to spend the next couple of weeks going up to base camp together. And then of course, supporting Lonnie and his journey, was a big part has been a big part of my life for the last two years as we prepared for this whole trip so once we arrived in Lukla and Lonnie was able to fly in boy the whole project uh of getting of the site the summit project of getting him to the summit of Mount Everest became kind of the focus and so uh with a good night's sleep and you know my wife uh I, I would at my side a little bit I was kind of rejuvenated and excited to do the next kind of step next phase that's so cool. So, so what was, uh, what was your responsibility with helping getting Lonnie to the summit? Because, you know, your experience with Everest before obviously knew some, a lot more of, of what to expect than if you were there fresh, what, what was kind of, uh, your mindset and, and some of those challenges that you were kind of preparing for individually? 
Yeah, well, I mean, Sightless Summits took a lot of work for the last two years to raise the money. Lonnie um, lives, he's a, he's a veteran, he's a disabled veteran, but he didn't, he wasn't injured in the line of duty and in, in combat. So his, and of course it stalled, it stopped his career at the, in the Navy. So his, uh, the income he gets from the Navy and from the Department of Defense is pretty limited. Um, so we had to raise a lot of money to make it possible for this trip to occur and to offset the expenses of the trip. So that was the previous two years. Once we got on the mountain, and I'm sure you've heard this, Everest and Nepal is unique because it, there's a very high quality, inexpensive labor force within the Sherpa community. So you have porters to carry all your heavy gear. And when you get up high, you have uh, Sherpa guides who carry group gear like tents and um, you know, ropes and that kind of stuff up. Your job is to focus on your own gear and of course on each other. So we are uh, primarily responsible for Lani, um, but the Sherpas played a huge role in doing a lot of the uh, local guiding. Once we got to the summit bid, it was just the three of us. So it was, uh, once we left camp four on our way to the summit and down, it was just me, Lani and Brian. There were Sherpas around us uh, but they weren't involved in actually our, the, the role of climbing. It was just the three of us. So Lonnie, I don't know how much you got to talk to him the other day. You know, Everest is not necessarily a very technical mountain, um, especially if you're in the rock climbing community. There's, uh, you know, they'll remind you that it's not a very technical mountain, but uh, uh, it is a difficult mountain. And if you're blind, I think it is very technical. And going through the ice fall and other places required a huge amount of trust by Lonnie of the people who were around him to get over crevasses, to make it through the ice fall and the other places. And he, uh, that responsibility primarily fell to my partner, Brian and I, um, I think that it's a, it's a, it's a lot to make sure you're prepared for mentally and physically, but it really helps when you have such a strong capable person like Lonnie who trusts you to be able to tackle all that together. What, what were some of the unique challenges of being blind on Everest? Like how do you, how do you find your footholds? What's the communication? Yeah. Cause I'm sure that's an aspect that's really important is a constant communication with one another. Yeah, there is a lot of that. And it's hard because you're not breathing very well when you're up at altitude. But... <laughs> I watched your video um, on top of Lutzi and, and you were like, yeah. it was like, you just ran a marathon. You were trying to talk. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, I yeah, mean, that's so, just constant. Yeah. So, you know, the biggest challenge I would say for Lonnie was the, uh, was the ice fall. The ice fall is the first major obstacle you reach when you leave base camp. It's, I'm sure you've heard it described, but it is a mishmash of crisscrossing crevasses and ice seracs, big ice towers and everything that's going down a, a kind of a, a frozen waterfall, if you will, you know, it doesn't, it, it's not frozen in place. It travels three or four feet a day, but so it's constantly moving, but the challenge you have with that are the crevasses. So large crevasses, if they're really large, you have to descend one side, rappel down one side, cross along what you think is the bottom, and then climb out the other side. That's challenging for Lonnie. The next, if it's a mid-sized crevasse, they'll usually, the um, Sherpa team called the Ice Doctors will put ladders across them. Um, I expected that to be a challenge for Lonnie to go across those ladders. As it turned out, it was not. He's, he's so good at memorizing his environment. He memorized the distance in the rungs, the ladder rungs, and he just made his way across those ladders without a whole lot of challenge. Wow. The real challenge though, is the small crevasses. So we had 
a hundred crevasses that might be a hundred feet deep that are only maybe three feet wide or four feet wide. So for a sighted person like you or I, you know, you step here and you launch yourself over, uh, you know, a sidewalk distance, you know, just like you would over your sidewalk, you just kind of launch over. Well, and jump land on the other side because you can see where you're landing. Mm -hmm. For Lonnie, he has no idea how far that is. He can reach out with his pole and he gets a sense of over there. But in the end, he just jumps. And there's this belief that you'll catch him, you know, he, but from his perspective, he's jumping into blackness, into space. And with the hope that he'll be caught on the other end, somebody will kind of guide him. And so for me, I think the real, his biggest challenge was the ice fall section. It was getting over all those small crevasses that aren't level, aren't easy. The footholds are small and easy for a sighted person, but not for a blinded person. Unbelievable. And because of the moving icefall uh kind of the glacier that's constantly moving all that's all constantly changing so it's probably very you you can't just put a ladder up over every crevasse that's Um, correct i mean when we went up probably pick and choose the the the, the most challenging to do that yeah i think that's right so the route you go up is not the same route that you go down two or three days later because it's Mm -hmm. been changed and changed so much i don't think I don't think that actually affects Lonnie that much because he can't see it anyways. <laughs> he doesn't, he doesn't know what he's traveling or jumping or crossing. He just knows that he has to cross a number of places, but. Uh, well, tell us, uh, did anything, was there any major mishaps or major, uh, potential other than just the adventure itself? Was there anything that happened that might've put the whole thing in jeopardy? Um, you know, I, I think we actually did really well. We, probably the biggest challenge we had or I had was on the descent. Um, Lonnie and I were working down the descent part. And there are some, I don't know if you've heard, Everest this year was a pretty deadly year. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people struggled up there. And I think that's due to a lot of different reasons. But um, we got down to a section and couldn't proceed any farther because there was an injured climber. So I, Lonnie got secured into an anchor and i went down and helped this sherpa with this guy who was dying and to just mainly to help him get out of the way and then i had to go back up and help lonnie down and in the end that guy uh, that was being helped he died when i came out of my tent at lotzi he was you know um, sitting out in front of the tent but um that was an interesting i mean seeing the death and seeing it firsthand was uh, i had seen i've seen death a few times but this was a little more personal so what, what were the contributing factors to this season being so deadly that, that was there anything unique about this season? I, I think it's just a growing situation in, yeah, in, in Nepal. People. I think yeah, more people, I think that, um, I think that more people are wanting to do it without training and prep. So, I mean, there, there are people there who still had tags on all their gear, you know, had never used them outside. And you watch them getting dressed and you're, you just shake your head and go without, you know, you don't want to be judgmental or I don't know anybody else's situation, but it, you know, when, when, when you see people not be able, not know how to put on their crampons or, you know, when it's time to put their harness on, they just raise their hands in the air and their Sherpa runs around them, you know, trying to get them dressed, that kind of stuff. And so, you know, this one guy, for example, that I, that I had helped on the, on this section near the balcony that I just mentioned, he was, you know, at least 70 pounds overweight and um, unhealthy. He was not a healthy person and uh, spent the night before going up drinking. And I just think there's maybe a little bit of a, 
yeah, a little bit of a casual approach to the mountain, you know? And so I think that's part of the problem. Uh, you know, the one thing that I will say that I think is overblown in the media, which is the crowds. I went, I summited Everest in 2021, which then was the highest permit year by, by Nepal 408, I think. And then uh, in, did it again in 23, which was the new highest year, 467 or something. I don't know, 400, high 400. So they increased by quite a bit, but I'll bet we never stood in lines um, at any bottlenecks for more than 30 or 40 minutes total, maybe a couple hours total on the whole mountain. And it usually happens at a, a place where rappel, so you only have one rope and a whole group has to go down it. But, but really the crowding thing is more of a, in my mind, a media driven. I think the reason photos like the one that showed up in that 2019 climb yeah. along the summit. Ridge, people were in the photo. Yeah. Yeah. I think the reason that makes such world news is because it doesn't occur that often. It's such a rare event. Well, isn't that what news is the exception to the rule? I think that's right. All. Yeah. I think about it every day. Well, the reason this is making the news is because it's the exception to the rule. I'm not, I'm not saying that they're not issuing too many permits. I, I, I can't really speak to that. I, I've, you keep hearing rumors that Nepal is going to require um, some background mountains. So one of the things they've talked about is requiring climbers who want to climb Everest climbing a 7,000 meter peak in Nepal. I think that'd be a really good idea. Oh personally. man, I but, mean, uh, think about it. Yeah. Like there's, there's qualifying races to enter, you know, uh, Leadville, any ultra marathon that's due to lottery and kind of needing to qualify but like from a safety point of view it makes a lot of sense too why not have a qualifying peak in proof um that sounds honestly obvious and it sounds like a great solution only because then you not only get people who are experienced but also people probably that will tend to respect the challenge and respect the mountain a little bit more that might also have a positive benefit on the uh the uh, garbage and the, and the refuse that's often found on the mountain. I mean, I only hear stories about this. I've never been there myself, um, but that feel like that's been an issue as well for a while. Yeah, I, th- I think the other the biggest issue is Nepal's revenue. I think they they look for the mountain revenue on the perm for the permits for Everest, and I personally think that they if done right, they could increase their revenue by requiring more mountains in that in their range to be done. But I think they're my guess is that they're just a little nervous about. Um, you got a good thing going. Yeah. The good news yeah. is the mountain's not going anywhere. And, yeah. uh, the amount of, then the pe- people that want to climb it, that, that is, I think always going to be there. Just human nature. It is there yeah, yeah. and you yeah. want to do it. Well, we'll take us through the moment of summiting. I mean, this is a big deal, no matter who you are, no matter what situation you're in, no matter how many times you've done it, it's a monumental achievement what was that experience like for you uh, with this kind of added responsibility of, of bringing somebody up there who can't see? Yeah. One of the questions I've, so first my, at my summit in 21 was very different from my summit in 23. We, uh, uh, we had gorgeous, clear, beautiful weather in 21. Uh, we summited right at daybreak. We were the first people up on the mountain. We had 30 minutes by ourselves up there. It was incredible. It was an amazing summit. My summit in 23 was also we were alone. Uh, with It was just Lonnie, Brian, and I with our with the um, uh, climbing uh, guide mm-hmm. and his Sherpas up there. 
but they, um, but it was, I, I say it was the perfect summit for a blind man. It was, it was, uh, there was, you couldn't see, there was a thick, thick, dense cloud and you couldn't see more than 10 or 15 feet. It was late in the afternoon. It was like four or 5 PM, which is typically not a good time to be up there, but the weather forecast was pretty good and we felt confident with what we were doing. And so it was ideal. It was, it was, it was perfect for him. So when you look at our photos of our summit of Everest, it's not as, uh, uh, impressive you know it's just a dark gray background you can't see anything and of course he couldn't see anything anyway so that was kind of a perfect thing but but hard I mean one of the challenges you have with Everest well it's not a technical mountain it is a big mountain and it is hard to get up there and so by the time you get there you're winded you're tired you've spent all the energy you think you have and uh, you know there's this uh, almost sense of just get me down I, I can't be here I don't want to take off my oxygen mask to take photos so you end up with these, you know, silly looking, just your, you know, you could be anybody, just a pair of goggles and a face and an oxygen mask. But um, Lonnie was, uh, you know, we do what we can to make the experience easier for Lonnie. Uh, we're carrying heavy gear and that kind of stuff. Or he, sorry, he is not carrying heavy gear and things like that. But in the end, it's his, he's very good at putting his head down and just getting to work and just pushing and pushing and not giving up. And so when, you, when we arrived uh, at the South Summit, which is uh, you know, maybe a couple hundred feet vertically below the actual summit, but it's still you know, maybe a 45 minute uh, hike, which 45 minutes at this elevation of where you and I are isn't terrifying it but up there boy it's just you can't even imagine hiking another 45 minutes in the in without that oxygen and without that so i was a little worried that he might uh call a lot of there are people climbers who call the south summit their summit and um you know we were a little nervous that that might happen there but uh but he's just really good at knowing what the goal is and pushing himself to get the you know the, that final bit so and when we got there the guide that we had hired a company called Mountain Professionals was already there. They were an hour ahead of us or something, but yeah. Jeez, so. man. So, well, you know, for folks that have never done this and, you know, have heard about Everest their whole life and, you know, they, we, they're at least familiar, myself included. I don't think I'll ever climb it. I don't know if I want to. And I, I'm, I'm too cheap, too. Um, you yeah. know, I like yeah. for cheap adventures. Um, yeah. Just describe, like, what are you experiencing? Like, all this is going through your head. I'm on top of the world you know, I don't know, just paint the picture for us, why it's so impactful. Okay. So I'll say a couple of things. The first is that by the time you get to this summit of Mount Everest, you are spent physically. And that translates to emotions. You hear about people crying on the summit and stuff. And I'm no exception to that. As I, especially as I get older, I get a little more weepy. Dude, you know? I, I cry when I see a pretty scene in the woods. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm like teary yeah. when I see a fish swimming through the water. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine. Yeah. So you do, you get, you get beyond the physical thing and into an emotional, uh, it becomes very emotional, very, you know, rewarding. And this, so that's, that's on an individual level, but then, you know, Lonnie, Lonnie is, like I said, he's a blind veteran. His community is primarily blind veterans. And Lonnie is, he feels like he can have an impact on that community in two ways. The first is by actually spending time with them. And he, Lonnie's very mentally healthy, but I think there is a lot of mental health issues in that community. I'm not sure how you and I would feel if we lost our eyesight. Uh, I know that I probably would struggle with that. I was blown away talking to him about his 
the mental health, like the mm. how intact his mental health seemed while dealing with it, and how like his amount of forgiveness and grace with his friend that caused it, like no hard feelings. I'm like, right. dude, I, I don't know. Then having to deal with raising three kids as a single father, I'm like, dude, how did you, how did you do? That? Like you do that, you can do anything. Everest is nothing, you know. And and so, how yeah, do you do I it agree. Being, I agree. Yeah, and how do you do that without being kind of resentful, you know, or yes. upset at the world in your situation? And so that was mind Lonnie, blowing. That was mind blowing. So I would say Lonnie uh, supports his community in two ways. The first is by spending time with them, and he he really does travel a lot, and he's. Uh, oftentimes spending almost every time we're together, he takes phone calls from a veteran who's struggling with some issue and he's there and he makes a difference and he's constantly involved in there helping them personally. But the other way that he has an impact on that community is by showing through his own example that life after a debilitating injury like his isn't over, that you can still have an awesome life. You can still do great things and be of value and I think climbing Everest is for him accomplishing that. He's setting an example. He's showing his blind community that, look, we can do hard things together. And um, for, so, so you, your question was how I feel getting to the summit. The experience on the second time with Lonnie was different because all of a sudden I had, I'm carrying with me an incredible amount of love for him and an incredible amount of love for his community, the blind veterans, and his success in some ways it feels like I get to do something really fun, but still have a meaningful, purposeful effect on other people through uh, him. So the second summit of Everest was about that community and making a difference and feeling like you're helping in some kind of remote, distant way. It wasn't just me out goofing off. We got to, we got to show the world that you can do hard things despite, um, you know, some curveballs being thrown at you. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. You know, one of the questions I asked Lonnie, which you'll have to listen to it, is, uh, you know, who would Lonnie be had he not been shot in the face in 1997? And he's like, I wouldn't be doing this stuff. Yeah. And my follow-up is always, especially with people who have that, man, I can't tell you how many people we've had on the show who have had, you know, a really awful, something happened like this. And the phrase, by the time I talked to them on the show, it's been years and they've dealt with it. And they were talking about some amazing achievement they've done, just like Lonnie. And, and, and they're glad it happened like that. They're like, I'm, I'm glad this happened to me because I would never have done this. I never would have looked life this way. I've never would have had the impact I've had. I'd just be, you know, I'd be a normal person, which is great. But like my purpose has come from that. And I don't know, for anyone that hasn't experienced a huge tragedy, I just think it provides a lot of hope. Like you said, half, if something like this is in my future, keep in mind these people like Lonnie, keep in mind these people who not only are dealing with it really well, but are, their life is more meaningful because of it otherwise. And it's just, it's, it's really gives a lot of hope that no matter what happens in the future, you, you can make a huge difference in this world. It's really cool, man. I I totally agree with you. It it gives you, but it all, it also gives you perspective about your life. Now, Mm. when you look at Mason's life or Michael's life and you look around at the challenges you're facing and all of us deal with stuff, 
but boy, I, I'm still seeing with my eyes. And so it puts in perspective how lucky and fortunate am I. And to be involved with uh, his experience and doing Everest and some of the other climbs and stuff that we've done together, it is richly rewarding to me. So uh, I feel like I've been blessed by it also. That is so cool. So what do you think, would you say that's probably the biggest lesson you took away from this biggest thing you learned? Or when you look at the whole experience, the biking and the climbing, what, what, what are some of those other things you think you walked away from learning? I, um, I have a, one of my kind of gifts in life is that I love people. And I, uh, I've, I've, most of my friends I've made out and about doing my stuff. And Lonnie is just an example of that. I, and just being with him and being going through India and meeting these very different people, with very different cultural backgrounds. And, and then Nepal is just how much I love those people and how awesome they are. There's so many cool people on the planet who make these adventures so fun and they all want to be somewhat involved with it. You know, they want to, and some of my best friends now are because of our people that I've met on my, on these kind of adventures and, Lonnie's certainly, you know, right up there. I actually met on the balcony, which is a little flattish spot as you're climbing up Everest. I met a couple of guy had a, they were on their way down and his boot had ripped open the, the um, zipper on his boot had ripped open. And I was worried about that. So I got up and went to help him. And it turned out he was uh, deaf, couldn't hear me or understand me. So he and his uh, partner are the first deaf couple to climb Mount Everest. So we became friends. And then in Kathmandu, a week later, I met Sam again and we talked and we became friends again. And they just spent the week here in my lake in Portland or sorry, in Oregon and together. And I just, those friendships are what I live for, you know, being able to, so, so this experience with Lonnie definitely gave me the opportunity to broaden my groups, broaden my friends and the people that I have come to love. That is awesome. And, uh, what I'm also blown away by is I can't believe you have four grandkids. You just don't yeah, look old man. enough to have grandkids. Man. <laughs> well, I appreciate you saying that. My wife and I got married young. We were, you know, I was 21, I think, and she was 20 and, uh, uh you know, my kids, kids young. Yeah. Well, you know, at first you don't know what causes it, you know, all these kids just start showing up and you're not totally sure what's happening. And, you know, and then you, you learn, you're like, Oh, you can't stop doing that. So what else is, what's next, you know? So, uh, and my kids are great because they, they all got so far, they've all, they all married young and they have uh, three of my kids have their own kids. And uh, one got married just this last year. So I think she'll wait for a little bit, but four grandchildren, four, all boys, four grandboys and the fifth one uh, in a couple of weeks. Not only do you have these great adventures, man, but you have just a wonderful family to go home to. And I, what do they think about all these things you do? Do they think dad and grandpa's crazy? I mean, the, the grandkids might not be old enough to like understand yet, but the kids, you know, they must think you're a little bit crazy or they like this too. No, no, they're, they're all of my kids are, are fit and, uh, you know, uh, athletic, active the, and uh, whatnot. Yeah. Active, but they, I didn't, they didn't grow up with me doing this. Remember, I, I didn't start doing this until I was in my early forties. And so, yeah, they, do they think we're crazy? Yeah, they do. And in fact, we had a situation this year where when I was in Nepal climbing Everest, my wife decided to, to hike the, the desert portion of the Pacific crest trail. Yeah. And absolutely. so, the only way that they could communicate with either of us is through satellite uh, texting. And, you know, it was, I think they think we're crazy, but they, it's fun. And we, 
my kids are very nice and they're very nice to us. And it's a, you know, it's, yeah, we're very fortunate. So they're nice to you. They, they're like, you know, dad, mom and dad are going to do their things. We're going to, yeah. We're going to let them do their things and just see them, see them when we see them. That, that is too cool, man. So um, you asked me to qu- a question earlier about uh, what one of my favorite things was. Do you want me to answer that? Yeah. Oh well? yeah, absolutely. Okay. So segueing then you asked me what, uh, at least what I understood to be the question, what is something I'm kind of proud of? I, um, I've done a lot of fun stuff. I, in rock climbing, I've come to realize that it doesn't have to be a hard route to be a fun route. And, uh, so I, I've been, I, I just enjoy taking other people, but, uh, on routes that are just awesome, but not necessarily super hard routes, mm-hmm. but I did, uh, but having said that, I would say that most people are, when we talk about what I've done are impressed by Everest. Um, and I think Everest is great. I think it's an awesome mountain. I'm glad to have done it those two times, but I think climbing El Cap was, uh, is a harder project and it's a more of a. It's one that I'm personally more proud of having done. I've climbed El Cap, I think five times now. And it's for me uh, more accomplishing, even though it's shorter, it's only five or six days, you know, and you're the whole project, but uh, it's a neat thing. And then, and to prepare for this trip, one of the things we did is something called the low to high. I don't know if you've heard of that. Is it Death Valley to Mount Whitney? That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Lowest point in the U.S., contiguous U.S. or the hemisphere, I think. I think it's the lowest point in the hemisphere. Yeah. yeah to, to the, the highest point, point in, the in the contiguous U.S. 120 miles apart. Gosh, what? 15,000 feet of elevation just about with, uh, well, not including all the hills, but yeah. Tell us about that. Well, the bicycle portion was uh, 160 miles, 160, yeah, 160 miles with uh, about 16,000 feet of elevation to get to uh, this thing called the Whitney portal, which is kind of the launching off place. And then me and the two guys that I did it with, we, um, went up the North fork of Lone Pine Creek trail to do the rock climb, uh, up the face called the East Butchers wow. climb. It's not a, it's not a very hard route. It's five. I think the hardest pitch that we did with the variations we did was five, eight. Um, so it's not necessarily difficult, but it's, but it's so much more fun than just hiking to the top of Mount Whitney. So we did that in, in one push and uh, me and these two guys and uh, boy, what a, what a hoot that was. That's a cool experience. I've never done that. I've done the biking portion of it, but I didn't climb Whitney. Um, Well, now you have a friend, man. Now I honestly, I love taking people up stuff like that. So I'm actually headed to Whitney in two weeks and uh, I've got a group of new they're not new climbers. Some of them are experienced climbers, but they've never done this route. So right. th- there are four of us doing, and we're doing the East Buttress route on it. So oh, that is that'll, awesome. It'll be a hoot. So that is too yeah. cool. So take, you know, w- w- with this sea to summit in Everest, to, you know, difficulty wise, climbing Everest, biking the, you know, seven, 800 miles, 900 miles up till then, you know, that's probably easier, but it is a lot longer. How would you compare the two? So they're different. The bicycle ride is, you know, uh, at, at, you're not at elevation, so you're, you can breathe better and you can stop and just rest if you need to. We weren't moving super fast. I'd, I'd say we moved an average of, I'd have to look at my notes, but somewhere between 80 and hundred miles a day and uh, mostly flat. The first 500 miles were flat. And then after that, it got started getting pretty hilly as we climbed up into the foothills of the Himalayas. But, um, I, I would say uh, that the bicycling port part is maybe a little more fun than climbing Everest. Everest is, uh, you know, I, I mentioned this, it's not a particularly technical mountain for the sighted. Um, 
And it's, it's just a, you know, like a lot of type two fun, it's just a bit of a slog and you just keep, you know, mountaineering in general is you do something for 10 days and then you wake up on the 11th day and you do the same thing over on the 11th day. And you just, you kind of have to get into that mindset of, I'm just going to keep going. And uh, so from a fun standpoint, I would say the bicycle route was more fun than the mountain, than Everest part. But, uh, but what are you more proud of having done? I'm, I'm so proud of Lonnie for having summited. And I'm so proud of playing a very small role in his journey to get to the top. So that is so cool. Two more questions and we'll wrap up. What's uh, what's next for you uh, are you, you know, with sightless summits, y'all y- have the goal of completing the seven summits. Now, are you going to be a part of that as well? Yeah, of course. I'm, I'm not doing the next, the next, uh, exercise they're doing is, uh, Antarctica and I've already done Antarctica and it's Antarctica is so expensive to go to. And it's, uh, uh, you know, quite frankly, I wouldn't say it's that awesome. It's just a sheet of ice, you know, <laughs> it's a little bit of rocks up there. So doing it again, doesn't really interest me. Uh, so they're, uh, Lonnie and Brian are fundraising right now to raise the money that they, they need to go do that. Um, after that, he's still got a couple mountains left and I hope to be a part of that with them. Um, that'll, you know, it'll be another six, eight months. Me personally, um, going to Whitney in a couple of weeks, just, that'll be fun. Um, I'm running a marathon in a couple of weeks. Um, and then really the next little bit of what I'll be doing is my bicycle, I'll fly my bike, uh, and me down to Columbia. My bike normally doesn't return to the United States with me. I normally just find a place to keep it wherever I stop. And I'll, I'll ride from uh, Barranquilla, Colombia to Quito, Ecuador, about 1,400 miles on this trip. Oh, that's awesome, and then, man. That's, yeah, uh, and then that's I'll, store, I'll store the bike there and come back a few months later and do the next segment. Last question. And uh, I'm celebrating nine years of marriage this weekend. What is the key to 30 years plus? (laughs) What are some tips? Well, I'll I'll give you two thoughts. Uh, And these, I'm not providing any advice, just my own (laughs) opinion about my own own experience. Uh, And one one lighthearted, one more serious. But the the lighthearted one is, you know, (laughs) make sure you're still physically attracted to each other. And thankfully, I I am. Sometimes I wonder why she is. But, you know, we still still really like each other. And I think that helps. But the more serious answer to that question is something that took me a while to understand and something that my wife does naturally. And it took me a while to really get. uh, And I had to learn through her example is, is um, I, my wife, since we've been married, has honestly cared more about my happiness than she did her own. And so that led to her acting in a certain way about me and supporting me and that kind of stuff. And I, I think as I got older, I started to appreciate how valuable that is. And so I, I, my, now I try my hardest to emulate her in wanting her to be as happy as she can be and as, have a, as rich a life as she can. And uh, I think somehow defying the laws of physics, that caring more about someone else somehow reaps better rewards for me, better return on that investment than it should. You know, it's like a, it's like a, uh, what do they call that clock? A, a perpetual clock. Perpetual that, clock. Yeah. Perpetual motion clock. Yeah. I mean, it, that physically it shouldn't work. And what I have learned about love and relationships is that the more you care about the other person, the more care you get back to you. And, and it's like a perpetual, it just, it defies physics. It defies logic, but it works. Something so, else that defies. And I think you are someone that will get this, that it, it seems similar 
you know, the more you exercise and stay fit, the more energy you have. Like, how does that make sense? You use energy and it's for some reason it creates more. That's a phenomenon you often see with people starting to get active. And I, and I think the same principle applies to relationships. Um, that's what comes to mind, man, that is really cool. Great advice. I like the first one. Um, (laughs) and I really like, and I like the second one too. So I'll be sure to tell her that. (laughs) That is hilarious, man. Well, uh, Michael, thanks so much. This has been awesome. Is there anything else you want to share? I I guess for folks to follow along sightlesssummits.com, uh, you know, you got a great Instagram. Um, I know you say you don't post tons to there, but, uh, anywhere else you want to point people? Yeah, I would social media for old guys like me is kind of hard. You know, it's like a chore. It's like when I have to post something on social media, I have to like, I have to stop and go, okay, let's get to your Zen place. Let's think about the photos. Let's think about the, so I tend to kind of skip it. You know, this summer I've done a lot, but I just, I don't know. I just, so I, I try to keep my Instagram up every three or four times a year. I'll try to post something in that, but yeah, just sightlessummits.com. If I had to direct people, it wouldn't be to me personally necessarily, but to the project. I think sightlesssummits.com is a great place to stay in touch with what Lonnie's doing and some of the other projects that we have coming up. Sweet. Well, Michael, thank you so much. This is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.